Well, good morning, church. How you guys doing today? Good, good, good. Everybody online, thank you guys for being here with us today. Can we clap loud enough so that people online can hear us? Yeah, that'd be cool. That's our way of saying welcome to the live stream. And speaking of live stream, I want to talk to you guys about what we talked about last week with the live stream. Uh, From now until Easter, we are partnering with our friends at our local ministry called A Friend's House. Uh, A Friend's House is a ministry here local in Henry County that when any time a kid is in crisis, whether that is um, they they were kicked out of their house or they ran away from home, basically they need a place to stay. A Friend's House offers them that place for kids in times of crisis, and it helps them find a home. And as we're in this series on homecoming, uh, one of the things that's near and dear to heart is one, both helping kids who are in that, but also helping uh, people who may, even though they have a home, have a place to say, to be able to find their home in Christ, find the Father's love. And so uh, we're going to try to essentially kill two birds with one stone. And here's how we're going to do that. So um, for you guys watching on the live stream right now, and you guys who are in here or who probably have a smartphone in your pocket with a Facebook app, or you can go online somehow, for every time that the live stream, the Facebook live stream is shared. So last week, you guys did awesome. There's like almost 50 shares throughout the course of the week. So that's awesome. That's, that's money that's already being going to be donated there. So every time that one of those shares happens, we as a church are going to donate $10 to go towards a friend's house. We're going to kind of make this be one big gift that we give them after Easter. So let's continue to like go above and beyond. Um, hopefully people find the hope of Jesus as those things are shared. It doesn't take a whole lot to just press a button. Um, but I believe that God can do amazing things, both uh, through the gospel going out over a place like Facebook and through a ministry that's helping homeless young kids find a home. So let's do that. Let's pray and we're going to dive in. Jesus, we thank you uh, that we can have the opportunity to have a home in the Father. Jesus, we thank you for leaving that home, giving your life here on the sin-scarred earth so that all who would put their faith, hope, and trust in you, Jesus, could be back a part of the family, be adopted and grafted into this family, God, that will reign and rule for generation to generation, God. You give us an invitation to be a part of something so grand, so amazing, and we are so unworthy. And Jesus, we acknowledge that today before we even uh, dive into your word, before we even dive into the story, God, that it is by some strange stroke of luck, grace, and mercy that we're even here. But I pray that all those here, whether they're in a room or they're online, that they know that there is no accidents, that they are here under the sound of my voice to be able to hear your voice today. And I pray you would get me out of the way that you would um, open my mouth where it needs to be opened. You allow me to speak where I need to speak and that you would shut my mouth and close it if there's anything that I say that is not of you. I pray that we, God, we would be a church that lifts you up today because we know that when you are lifted up, you draw all men to yourself. I pray that you would do that today. In your name, amen. If you got a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 is where we're going to be. Uh, we've been uh, diving into the story uh, of the prodigal. And, and really, that's not the best name of the story. I know it says like the story of the prodigal son in your Bible. But really, um, the story is, is about a prodigal son, another prodigal son who happens to be older. And really, the most prodigal person in the entire story is a father. And we're going to unpack that as we get deeper into the story. But today, uh, we're still talking about the younger son. Today, we're going to be specifically leaning into his return and the party that the father throws for this child. So if you got a Bible, hopefully by now you're in Luke chapter 15. Did I tell you guys Matthew 15? I should. Old habits die hard, church. Luke chapter 15. Hopefully you're pretty close if you're in Matthew, so no worries there. Luke chapter 15. 
So let me give you the context. Context is key to understanding what's going on in this passage. Uh, recapped a little bit last week. If you missed last week, I would definitely say go back and listen to that. Uh, the context for what's happening here is Jesus tells these three parables. Parables, a little story, the big truth. Almost always Jesus' parables point to not just what God is like, but what the kingdom is like and what, how we act and, and what's going on inside the kingdom of God. He does them oftentimes to be able to prove points that point to the king that God is and what his kingdom is going to be like. So, what prompts Jesus to tell these parables is who he's hanging out with. Uh, Jesus is, is known for, and he's becoming infamous for, to some people, famous to some people, for the crew that he keeps, his entourage. And at this point, um, that consists of two groups that the religious and the elites have a very big problem with. It's two groups, one known as the tax collectors, and that would have been... Um, people who were looked at as traitors, people who were essentially ones who abandoned their nation to, to work on behalf of another nation that was the enemy of one nation, the, the Israelites, to work on behalf of the Roman government that was taking control of them and pushing them down to work on behalf of that to extort and to take taxes from the nation that they used to be a part of. And even though their blood may have still been Jewish and their hearts and to everybody around, they were not either Jewish or Roman. They were a traitor who was caught in the middle. And they were looked at as some of the lowest of the low. And then there was this catch-all phrase that Jesus was spending time around called sinners. And we talked about last week, it's not like how we talk about like, hey, this is a room full of sinners. Like, hey, we've all had some sins. We've all done some bad things. When it said sinners then, and that was what the, the religious elite would just deem them as the quote unquote sinners, that was a catch-all phrase for a little bit of everything, whether that was someone who was a prostitute, whether that was a pimp, whether that was someone who, who had committed a heinous crime, whether that was swindlers, and also inside that group were people who had disabilities. So uh, we see the story of Jesus healing a blind man and the disciples come to him and ask him, and they go, hey, is it because this man sinned or his parents? And Jesus goes, it's not about sin. He, he was blind so that the glory of God could be manifested in life. And what that's tapping into was the common thinking in their day and age was that your blindness is because of sin and you're a sinner so anytime they saw somebody who was disabled, disfigured, suffer from schizophrenia or disabilities or, or mental health things, they would just label that person, you're a sinner, because the fact that you are not perfect and you don't walk with a long flowing robe and pray in the streets and have all the things that us religious elites have, it is obvious that God's favor is not on you. And then also in the crowd are those religious elite, the Pharisees people who, who had the first five books of the Bible entirely memorized, who, who had all of that there. And so you have these two categories to just sum up what they are. You have the categories of the haves and have nots. And really nothing has changed to our day and age. We still feel like that's the same thing. The haves are a little bit different. We don't look at the haves necessarily from a religious or righteous side of things. Some of us do. And then there's the have nots. And so Jesus hears the haves, the religious elite, grumbling that he's spending time with all these people. And they go, why is this, this, this supposed man of God, why is this supposed rabbi spending time with these types of people? And in response to that, Jesus tells a collection of three parables. We're leaning in specifically to this third one. But the week before Easter, we're going to kind of look at them all as a whole. So Jesus leans into this third one. He tells them a parable about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and he gets here into this parable of this lost son. And to recap a little bit of what we talked about last week couple of big things here. We lean into this younger son who wandered away from home, who had distance between the father. We made this point that prodigal is not necessarily a position on a map. We think I'm only a prodigal when I wander far away from God. But how many of you know that you can still be even in the house of God? You can still be gathered together doing church things. You can even sometimes be in the word doing those things and you can still be distant from God. So prodigal is not a position on a map, it's a condition of our own hearts. 
And we even talked about it with this kid. You don't just roll out of bed and go to your father and go, yeah, give me the inheritance. In the same way that many people were divorced before they ever filed papers and many people had already quit a job before they fully turned in their resignation paper. It is possible to be in a marriage and already be divorced. It's possible to be at a job and have already quit. And it's possible to be a prodigal even when you're at home. So I want us to be able to see that we all have younger brother tendencies. And so let's pick back up the story. We're gonna start with 11 and we're gonna really start unpacking kind of when we see his turning point moment. Matthew, or man, the old habits die young. Luke 15, Luke 15, 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate, which I wanna pause right there and, and draw out a point that I didn't talk to you guys about last week. So when traditionally you would be uh, a Hebrew tradition as far as inheritance would go, it's different than what we think of. So when a patriarch in one of our families or our older mother, whatever, when they pass away, we get notified about what we're going to receive as their child in their inheritance through a will, right? In their day and age, it wasn't like that. There was no lawyer who's going to show up and say, okay, well, here's your check. And here's how, like, there's no trustee of the estate who is necessarily going to divvy all of that out. What would happen, and we see this, specifically, we want to go see a story where this happens, is the story of Jacob and Esau. The father would be usually on his deathbed, the, the blessing, so to speak, conversation would be one that the father would have right before he was gonna die, right before he was gonna pass away. He would come in, he was bringing his sons and he would give them this blessing. It was kind of these, these last words. Most often this blessing moment was looked at as the last words between the father and his sons. And when you think about it like that, what I need you to understand is that's what this younger son is now doing to his father. This conversation is the deathbed of their relationship. It's essentially saying, this is the last time we talk. And from this moment forward, you are dead to me. And I'm okay with you thinking that I am dead to you. So that's where the story goes. And that's, that's going to make all, uh, come into account in a second. So it says that the father divided the property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. And that's where we're gonna pick up our story uh, today. Luke 15, 15. Talked about a friend's house. Reminder, share that out. Luke 15, 16. All right, so he's there, severe famine. He's hired himself out and says he longed to fill the stomachs are long to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So I wanna, I wanna camp out on something that's going on in this young man right here. What I want you to see is that in this moment, he's what? Simple, not, not a trick question. What is he? He's hungry. No, he's hangry. Like he is very hungry. He's wasted everything that he has. And as I was processing through the story and praying through the story this week, what I began to realize is that hunger had, was what he was feeling right now. But hunger is what got him into this whole mess in the first place. See, God created every single one of us with appetites and hungers. And he created us with those things that we could experience the joy when he satisfied them so that we could be satisfied in him when he satisfies our needs. The problem is this younger son did not like the timetable and the ways in which the father would satisfy his hungers. 
And so what he does here in this moment is he says, you know, we asked this question last week. We said, when you roam from home, what is it that you're looking for? Well, when you roam from home, what you're looking for is whatever you're most hungry for. So we may roam from home. We may roam from a relationship with the father looking for romance with a person. We may roam from home looking for acceptance from a group of people. We may roam from home looking for the security that maybe money can provide for us. But all of us have some kind of hunger inside of us. And what I want you to see in this story is that what happens here is his appetites get him in trouble. And I don't know about you, I'm not gonna make you guys raise your hand on this, but how many times have you gotten some of your most trouble spiritually because you had an uncontrolled appetite? You, you met an appetite or you fed an appetite in a way that wasn't God's way. What I want you to know, if that's you, is hunger. Hunger got you here. And hunger will get you home. Hunger got you wherever, however distant or far away you feel from the God. Hunger got you there, but hunger is also the very thing that will get you home. And so I ask the question, what is it that you're actually hungry for? And this is where you gotta be honest with yourself. Maybe you look at people around you and you ask them, hey, based off the way I'm living my life, this is a scary question. Based off the way I'm living my life, what does it say I am most hungry for? I have the greatest appetite for. Parents in the room, what, what in the world would your kids say about that? Yeah, if maybe you have a middle school or high school kid old enough to be able to maybe have the cognition to answer a question like that. Hey, son, by the way you see dad live his life, what does it say I most desire? It's a scary question, isn't it? You gotta wrestle with that. You gotta track that down because the greatest potential for God to use you, I think is bound up in that question and the greatest potential for Satan to use, abuse and manipulate you is bound up in that question. Satan already knows what you're most hungry for, newsflash. God does too. And you probably would be better off if you put a finger on it as well. So the story goes on. His hunger has got him into this. We come here to verse um, 17. Verse 17 says, but when he came to himself. So he gets this, I don't think he intended, but he gets the divine clarity that comes from fasting. <laughs> he did, I don't think he tried to do this on purpose, but his fasting leads him to some amazing clarity. And rock bottom has that potential with us, right? You hit rock bottom, you start to come to yourself. You realize, man, I don't have anybody else around me. There again, nobody gave him anything. He had spent everything and he had nobody to show for it. He comes to himself and he says, I love these words, how many of my fathers. Let's just pause right there. Listen, when he begins to come to himself, when he begins to come to and realize what's actually going on, the point of reference, even in the pig pen, the thing that he still pinpoints there in the pig pen as the basis for who he is and his identity is still the father. The first words out of his mouth, the father. When he begins to think about how things need to change, things, how things need to get different, that's still the very place that he goes. He says, okay, how many of my father's hired servants? Now, hired servants, those wouldn't have been the people who lived in the house and the father knew by name. Hired servants are essentially day laborers that come into the house and, and do the work. Any, any farmer or any big landowner in that day and age, hired servants, they would come in, they go out, you, you cycle through some as it went. It was a transient thing. He had, how many of my, my father's hired servants? And I want you to lean into this. How many of those hired servants have more than enough bread? How many of them have more than enough if you're the type of person who underlines stuff in your Bible, underline those words, more than enough. If you have an NIV, it may look different. This is what it says in ESV, more than enough. Now, did this son used to have more than enough? Totally. Did he have way more than enough when he left? For sure. But in this moment, he has nowhere near more than enough. He has nothing. He has nothing to show for it. 
But even in this moment, what he's remembering is the character of his father, that he even has a father, that even in the most disposable, quote unquote, of servants, they still have more than enough. That his father is a type of man who has a character that gives in abundance so that even the lowest of the low on the totem pole still have more than enough. And I want you to understand something because we live in a world that says you are not enough and you don't measure up unless you have enough of X, Y, Z, fill in whatever that blank is. Many of you have been told, whether it's at a job interview, a last date, a first date sometimes, a breakup, a resignation moment, that you just weren't enough, that you weren't skilled enough, that you weren't smart enough, that you didn't have enough brains enough, that you weren't pretty enough, that you didn't have the, the pedigree, you didn't have enough education. There's a lot of you in this room who a lot of the things you do is because you don't feel like you're man enough. The world has many women in a state of depression and anxiety because they don't, just don't feel like they're enough. They're enough for their husband. They're enough for their kids. They're enough for the people who are looking. They're enough for everything online. You just don't feel like you're enough. But here's what I want you to see. And I've been praying for you this week. My prayer for you this week has been that you would realize and remember that with the Father, there is always more than enough. Again, God's par- when, when Jesus speaks a parable, He's not just trying to show you, hey, this is a man and these are some of the things. In this parable, the father unequivocally points to God and his character. And what he's trying to get you to see is if there is a, if there is a father who represents a God who even gives stuff to hired indentured servants who he does not even know their name, how much more in that father's house will he give more than enough for his kids? See, this world is always gonna leave you at a place of deficiency. But in the Father's house, there's always more than enough. And he says, okay, there's enough bread. And he talks about, and he's comparing and contrasting that where he is. But I perish here with hunger. It's his way of saying, I'm out here and I am dying. And what's beautiful about what's happening right here is as he is getting ready to physically die, as he is physically wasting away inwardly and spiritually, he is being reborn. He is being renewed and restored. I believe what's happening here is now I actually get to use, um, uh, I don't want that there, keep going. What's actually happening here is, now I get to talk about Matthew verse, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I believe in this moment, that's what's beginning to get triggered. He, He is poor in spirit. And now it took in that moment for him to be poor in finances, poor in resources, poor in relationships, to be poor in everything, to actually become poor in spirit. And again, one of the things that I prayed for myself and I prayed for you this week is that you wouldn't have to become poor in everything else before you become poor in spirit. I'm telling you, friend, it is a whole lot easier to to just be poor in spirit and not be poor in money, to not be poor in health, to not be poor in everything else. But God will do whatever he has to do in order to get you as one of his kids to poor in spirit because only at that place, can yours be the kingdom of heaven? And that's what's happening in this moment. Now, at, at this point in the story, this is where I wonder, like he's here, he's, he's literally at his absolute rock, rock bottom moment. And this is the point in the story that I go to and I go, what if, again, if this father that Jesus is talking about here represents God the father, who I believe is omnipotent, knows everything, knows what's best for his kids, right? God's the father that knows what's best for his kids, amen? All right, I think that's who's been represented here. If that's who he really is, then what if this is the father's plan all along? Track with me here. What if this father knows that with this kid, 
The only way that he will ever get to the place where he loves me unconditionally is when he gets to the full end of himself. The only way that he could ever be found is if he gets all the way lost. And what if this father knows that this is the only way? And despite how much it may hurt me, how much it may pain me, and how much it may leave him and lead him almost to the brink of inexistence, this is what has to happen for this child. Because you read these stories and you read the three parables. And, and remember, like the first one, he gives this parable of the lost sheep, all right? So the sheep gets lost and wanders out in the country. And what does the shepherd go do? He goes out and finds it. He rolls up his sleeves. He leaves the other one, taps him on the head. Y'all be good while I'm gone. And he goes out into the far country and he finds the lost sheep. And then he tells a story about this, this woman and she loses um, one of her, her coins. Now, what she would have had around her neck was likely this thing called a dowry and it was um, given to her on her wedding day. It was almost, not quite, but kind of closely the equivalent of almost like losing the diamond out of her engagement ring. She loses that. And then what does she do? She doesn't just wait on the diamond ring to, you know, just wait on the coin to roll back up her leg and get us way back into the dowry, does she? No, what does she do? She goes and sweeps the house. She gets on her hands and knees. She's searching frantically to find this thing. And then you come to this story. And you expect to see a father busting his tail out into the field. But again, if this father represents all-knowing, all-loving God, we got ourselves a conundrum. Why doesn't he go? What if it's because an all-knowing, all-loving God knows that for some of my kids, if I run after them, it will only push them farther away. This father knows, and you, again, you tell me what's harder. Going to a field to find a sheep, sweeping your house to find a coin, or watching your kid ruin his life, knowing that's the only way that he will actually find life and find love and find hope and find peace. Which one of those is harder? Every parent in the room will tell you one of the absolute most atrocious, painful, hard things to do is to let your kid fail. And so we, look at, we can look at the story and go, oh, that, that was the one where like the other two had some frantic searching and, the, and you know, that's where they're at. And then this story, the God just kind of just is sipping sweet tea, waiting on his son to come back. No, there is angst, there is fear, there is worry. There, there is a father who is doing something that is far harder than a shepherd going out into the field to leave the 99 to find the one. There is a father who is doing uh, something far harder than getting down on hands and knees and searching for something. There is a father who is willing to let his kids come to the end of themselves so that they can find him. And that is a love that I don't know a whole lot about but I will spend the rest of my life understanding and grasping a God who would be willing to do something like that. That's a God who doesn't fit in our box. That's a God who is something different than a lot of times what we think he actually is. Because some of the churches I grew up in this story was, and the, and the way this is preached is, well, then when the son pulled himself back up by his bootstraps and did all these things, then the father, you know, he finally came back in. And again, there is some merit to the repentance that is found in the son. But I want you to see that all of this, again, if the father in the story represents a divine, loving, omnipotent God, then the hardest thing that is happening in the course of these three parables is the father letting him go. And in our lives, this is the point. Sometimes your failure is the father's success. See, I don't know if the father knew all the details. Again, it's just a parable. We can't read all that into it. But sometimes what looks like your deepest, most broken moment of loss is a win for the father. <laughs> Some of you have experienced this and you can relate. God doesn't like pride in his kids. 
And for my own personal life, I've experienced that God's tool in my life for extracting pride is not pleasure. God's tool for extracting pride in my life is pain. The painful repercussions of my own prideful decisions is oftentimes the very thing that God allows to be what yanks the pride out and replaces it with humility. And that's even what we're going to see happen here in the story. And from the father's side, any time in your life, in my life, prodigal's life, any of them, any time that his kids become less proud of themselves, become more humble in him, that is always a success for him. Let's look at verse 18. So he's uh, putting his plan together. He says, I will set out and I will go back to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned. That's a huge deal right there that he's acknowledging. I've actually sinned. He's not saying, Father, I made some mistakes. If I would know now what I know then, I, I would have done things differently. He's just straight up saying, bottom line, I have sinned. And I didn't just sin against you. I sinned against heaven and against you. Sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. From there, he keeps going on. He's rehearsing a speech. Come to verse 19. I'm gonna really lean into some of this here. I'm gonna kind of go word by word. He says, I am no longer worthy, worthy. I hear so many people talk about worth nowadays. He says, I'm no longer worthy. And that's kind of what sin does to us, right? He practical with his thinking. Father, I have done so much wrong against you that I am no longer worthy to even be called your son. I'm no longer worthy to be looked at as one of your kids. Now, right or true or false, was that actually true? It's true. He is totally, because of what he's done, he's essentially already said to this father, from this moment forward, I don't have a relationship with you. You don't have a relationship with me. This whole father-son thing is over. He totally was not worthy to be called his son. But what's wild about this story and what we begin to see happen here is worth is not something that is allowed to be defined by kids. Fathers define worth of their kids. And I wanna point and kind of turn the corner here and, and, and show you Jesus to show you that it is by what Jesus did on the cross that our worth has actually been defined. Because the truth about the father is the father doesn't define your worth by what you've done. He defines your worth by who you actually are in him. So who you are in him is what defines your worth, not what you've done. Now, for a lot of us, that's like, what? Uh, that's, but it doesn't feel like that, Trent. I think the problem is our feelings. Because a lot of us, we say words like this. I struggle with self-worth. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands. I think a lot of people in the room will go, yeah, I struggle with self-worth. Here, here's the freeing news I wanna to deliver to you today. You will always struggle with self-worth. Here's why. Because you don't get to determine or define that. When we talk about worth, you determine what something is worth by what someone is willing to pay for it. And for your, your life and my life, what someone is willing to pay for your life and my life is Jesus. God gave Jesus as the son of God so that we could be called children of God. So the price, your worth is Jesus. And so now none of us ever have the right anymore to ever go, I struggle with self-worth. No, 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 no. You don't. And if you are, you're, you're continuing to struggle with something that's not, it's not your job. Your self-worth has already been defined. So when you say, I struggle with self-worth, you're, you're struggling with figuring out where it's at. Well, I feel like it's too low. All right, maybe I feel like it's too high. I feel like there's very few people who feel like their self-worth is too high. I've ran into a couple and I've had my own moments. But most of us, our self-worth is way down here. 
And what I want you to understand here, my friend, please, please, please grasp this, is Jesus, through his bloodshed on the cross, showed to you what you are worth to the Father. And so that now, when we think about our relationship to God, the same way the son who's going, okay, because of my sins, because of my mistakes, because of everything I did wrong, I am now worthless to the Father. He's going, no, no, no. I created you. You are mine. You don't get to determine and define worth. That is my job. So I would make even a bolder statement here to say that you trying to define or determine your own self-worth is actually sinful. It's you putting yourself in the judgment seat of God and saying, because of my sin, here is what I am worth and here's what I'm not worth. Here is how worthy I am or how unworthy I am. Friend, only God gets that job. And your job as, as just being one of his kids will get a whole lot easier if you just surrender that back to him and look to the cross and see your worth through the broken body of Jesus, through the poured out blood of Jesus, and through the empty tomb of Jesus that says that you now have a way made, that that empty tomb is an open door for you to fully enter back in to this family of God. To put it simply, some of you are not, uh, some of you are better with visuals, okay? So say this is our lives, all right? And we struggle with our identity, our identity, kind of our self-worth, all this other type of stuff. And then we have sin. And what happens in our life, whatever is lowest is the thing that's heaviest. You know, that's how scales work. So when sin feels like it's heavy, when we've gone, you know, weeks and we've messed up, we haven't been in our Bible, we haven't gone to church, we haven't been tithing, we're struggling, we're watching stuff we shouldn't watch, we're, we're being mean, we're kicking cats, all these things. When these sins are what is weighing down our life, the full weight of sin is what fills on our life. And so because that's heavy, our identity, that has no weight. It's not carrying weight. And so the thing that we feel like we're identified by and what we define ourselves by and find our self-worth in and where it goes down is because of our sin, the full weight of that. And we're bearing that burden. But I wanna point to you and show you the, the glory that is in the gospel where this is how we normally operate. And again, this is every other major world religion that says if, you're, if your good outweighs your bad, then that's great. Or if your bad outweighs your good, then that's bad. And based off of where that scale ends at the end of life determines where you're going to nirvana or whether you're going to hell or whatever version of eternal punishment that they choose. But this is where Jesus comes into the picture and says, I have made for you sin weightless. Sin can carry no weight in your life. The punishment of sin has been dealt with as me who knew no sin became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. The full weight punishment of sin has been dealt with and you could have never paid that on your own because you're not the spotless, blemishless lamb of God. Only I am, it's what Jesus would say to you there. So that sin has been dealt with, carried with. It is light. It is non-existent. No weight to it at all. So then what happens is our identity is firmly founded and rooted in Christ. And if you're in Christ, even though it may feel like these scales are seesawing back and forth in your life, friend, let me tell you, those are just your feelings. This is the actuality if you are in Christ. So I hope Oh, you can take a picture of that. I don't know what you need to do, but that's, that's the truth. Story goes on from there. It says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So it's not just a matter of uh, being worth it. It's a matter of being worth being called and identified as your son. What's happening here, again, put yourself in the kid's mind. He's saying, and again, he's going to get a second. He's going to actually call him father by name. He's already referred to him as father in his mind. What's going on here is he's saying, look, I still acknowledge you as father, but I know now that I 
could never deserve or I could never demand that you from your side of things ever look back on me and call me son ever again. I don't ever deserve to be called father or to be called son by you. Now again, was that right? Yes. But again, this is where I draw our attention because we have those moments too in our lives where we feel like I don't even deserve God's love. I don't even deserve to be his child. I just rather would work things off. I would just rather do the things that I need to do to be able to pay him off. I would just rather uh, he don't think of me as son and just let me be someone who kind of does some things and at the end of it, when it's all good and dry, then things are okay. No, he's going, you are my son. And I had to treat my son like he was not one of my sons. I had to treat him like the last lost, worst, terrible sinner that, that you actually are so that you could be called a son that you could be called a son. And the point that I'm trying to get you here is where this son is going, hey, you don't have to claim me anymore, dad. When you see me in the fields, I'll just be a hired servant. You don't have to acknowledge me, say, that's my boy, everything else. You don't ever have to say these words ever again, dad. You never have to say, he's mine. A lot of us, we've probably had moments in our life where that's maybe been where we've been. Where one of the hardest things for you to ever believe that God could say about you is he's mine. She's mine. And look, for those of us who are parents in the room, man, like we love to be, like when our kids do something good. And again, sometimes we've had to bail them out of jail and go, he's mine. Sometimes we had to go to the principal's office and there's a couple kids sitting there. Which one of these kids is yours? He's mine. But you know what it's like on the prideful side of it too, though, right? Like last weekend, me and Titus were at a baseball game and, and he, he did a great job. He, he threw three shutout innings and close tight game in the championship game. We ended up winning the game. And uh, as it was going on, one of the other coaches said, man, that kid's really throwing great. He's, he's, he's staying in the strike zone. You're just kind of bragging on him a little bit. And I mean, I was amped for that moment, right? That's what you look for. That's the reason you, you work them hard in practice and everything else. And, and I could not wait to, in that moment, say those two words, he's mine. Some of you, I want you to understand this, that the Father is not waiting on you to pitch a shutout or win the championship game to say that about you. He's saying it right now, in this moment, no matter how broken you may feel, no matter how lost you may feel, he's saying, he's mine, she's mine. And in the son's heart, he's like, I don't want that, I don't deserve that anymore. But again, as lovingly as I can say it, God cares very little about what you think you deserve. He cares about his character. He cares about being a good father to you and he'll do whatever he has to to make that happen and prove that. So he says, uh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he says, treat me like one of your hired servants. Again, there's, there's a whole lot of, of, of stuff in here of, of hired servants. Again, he's saying, father, here's the deal. You don't call me a son. I don't need any of that. Just let me go uh, uh, work, work myself off. Let me just be able to kind of go and, and get out of here. You know, I, I will die trying to pay you back. And, and the great news here in all of this is we don't have to die trying because Jesus died doing You could never pay it back. Jesus died doing, and it is done. It is finished. He declared that on the cross. It is finished. I don't have to work myself off to God. I don't have to become a hired servant to him. I actually become a free man. Freedom. What I need you to know about the far country is whenever you're in the far country, no matter how high you rise to the king of the castle, to the top of the top, whatever name you get on the door, in the far country, you will always be a slave. You're a part of a system. System doesn't care about who you are, just cares about what you do. In the far country, you will always be a slave, but in the Father's house, you will always be a son. You will always be a child. 
to put forth praising God for. Amen. So we see what happens. And there's a, there's a long distance between 19 and 20. So it says, he got up and went. And this, between 19, feeling all that way, thinking all that way, in verse 20, where he actually gets up and put rubber to the road, this is where most prodigals stay prodigals. Because they feel a certain way, they feel some kind of way, but they don't walk some kind of way. He takes a few steps. He got up, he went to his father. And I love this part. It says, but while he was still a long way off. And some of you this morning, you feel a long way off. Some of you have been in church for a while and you still feel a long way off. Again, the father was okay with him feeling a long way off. That feeling a long way off was a slingshot that the further it got away from the father actually made it be able to propel closer to the father in an amazing way. So he felt long, a long way off. So while he was a long way off, his father saw him. Now, again, back to what I was talking about earlier of I think this was all part of the father's plan. He knew that with this specific child, this is what had to happen. He had had to go and lose himself to find me. So the father, why is he there? Why does he see him a long way off? I don't think it was because the father was hoping. And I know we talk about hope a lot in church. I mean, there's New Hope churches. I used to be on staff at a New Hope church. Hope is a great thing, but here's the difference. When I just go, I hope my kids grow up and do great things for God. I hope my marriage is great. I hope the church begins to lift Jesus up and the gospel spreads. I hope. I, maybe this sounds weird. There's a difference between hoping and faithing. And I don't just think this father was hoping that his son was coming. Again, this father represents God, a God who wasn't just hoping this prodigal was gonna return, a father who had faith this prodigal was gonna return, who knew this prodigal was gonna return and was on the steps waiting for the prodigal return because he couldn't wait to be there the moment that he did. He wasn't just sitting there and praying at small group going, hey, y'all just please pray for my, old, my, my younger boy. He's just, he's out there. Just I'm hoping he comes home. No, I believe when every, anybody asks him, when they pass him on the street, what's going on? How's, how's that younger boy? He's coming home. He's coming home. He's coming home. And that's why I would just say to some of you today, you need to change your language from hope language to faith language. And there's some, again, we serve God. There's got to be some godly confidence inside of believers. I'm not just hoping anymore. I'm faithing. My faith is here. The father, while he's a long way off, he saw him filled with compassion. This word compassion speaks of this like inside your guts, determinate longing. He's filled with compassion. And what I, again, I tried to just pray through and see through and be able to watch this happen. And in my heart, even as a dad, just began to be heavy because I think about my boys and I pray. And again, I believe neither of them will ever, I pray that neither of them will ever become prodigals. But the father's heart in me begins to go to this place of compassion when I think about a child. Remember, this is a father who raised him. He saw this son take his first steps. He, he saw this son ride his first camel, do all these things that a young son does. He sees all of those things and then sees this young teenage boy come to him with swagger in his voice and say, Father, give me what's mine. And he watches his baby-faced boy walk out. And then he watches as a sin-scarred man walks back and he sees the toil of sin. He sees the pain that was bound up in the decision to hand him over the wealth. He sees the scars. He sees his head shaven because of uh, now becoming a servant. He loses his identity. He, he sees no shoes on his feet, even though he left with shoes. He, he sees no robe on his back, even though he left with robe. He sees the pain and what sin has caused his son and filled with compassion as his son who he watches take his first steps, as he takes a step towards the driveway, he runs. 
Now, and again, in that culture, uh, you've probably heard this before, uh, a patriarch did not run. And again, this story, he, he is representing um, a God in this story. He, he's representing a, a wealthy landowner in this story. If you know anything about their society, you do not run. Everywhere, everybody wears long robes, and this was to happen. He was having to roll that bad boy up, roll that up, cinch it around his waist. He gets that there, and then he's just high-stepping it down the driveway. I mean, you're not supposed to show knee. He's showing also, I know, I know knee and, and, and everything else is in style nowadays. But back then, mm-mm, no, don't show any of that. But he's showing that. And, and here's why I want you to see the, the length that he's willing to go in this is God will be as disgraceful as he needs to be to show you grace. And God will, will be as undignified as he needs to be to restore your dignity. And there is no, I mean, like, what is the cross if it is not this? Of, of God's own, there is, there is nothing more disgraceful than the cross. Even the Old Testament said to hang upon a tree is to be deemed cursed by God. There is, there is nothing more indignified than being nude, whipped, and mutilated, eye level with people as they can walk by, spit on you. There's nothing more undignified. And again, the beautiful, most controversial, upside down thing about our faith is that we have a God who is willing to be as ungraceful as he needs to be and as undignified as he needs to be to restore your dignity and to give you grace. And that's what he does. That's what he does upon the prodigal return. He ran and then it says he threw his arms around him. Now again, there's religious people in the crowd. There might be some here today. They hear this and, <laughs> and because they love details, because they love details, they remember where was this boy at? Where was he? He was in the pig pen. Pigs are what? Pigs are unclean. So this kid is ceremonially unclean and this father just touched him. What did that father just become? Father's unclean too now, gross. All the religious people in the crowd are going, no, this is terrible. I liked him so much better when he was still in the pig pit. They hate the story at this point, which is exactly Jesus' point. We're gonna get into older brother next week. So that's exactly what Jesus is after. The father becomes ceremonially unclean by hugging his kid. He could literally care less. He wraps his arm around his son, stinky as he is, wraps his arms around his son, and it doesn't stop there. He kisses him on the face. Gets all up in that mess. Not afraid of it at all. And sometimes, I, some, some of you, I think, you come, when you come back to God, you think God's just gonna side hug you in back into the house. God's not gonna side hug you. God is ready and willing to bear hug you, face kiss you into his house. I don't know about you. Like, I, I was thinking through the story about kisses and I don't know, I'm not for kissing boys. Um, hopefully you could have put that together. Um, but I have two, and what I can tell you is that, like if you were to uh, line graph the amount of kisses I've given my boys at newborn state, it, it was high, and it has begun to trickle down. Like Titus, maybe once a week or something, and it's definitely not on skin, it's more on like the top of his head. Ezra probably gets a little bit more, he's younger and everything else, but there's probably gonna come a time when for my boys, and it's just, I grew up different, you know, that was, that's not like, again, most of you know I have spatial issues, which, you know, like some of you have kissed me before in this church, and I'm like, I wanna stiff arm you in the face. Um, <laughs> swim move out of that thing. But, what I think this points to, and Rembrandt has an amazing point. Uh, you Google image, um, The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt. It's a beautiful point, uh, picture, uh, painting. But what I think he's getting at here is this is a rebirth. This child is being reborn. Same way you embrace a brand new baby. 
Same way you, you're more apt to kiss a new baby. That's why you mamas, sometimes you say, I just want to eat you, which is like, why? What? <laughs> what? Please don't eat my child, church lady. This is weird. I think what's happening here is, is, is Jesus is alluding to this child being born again. The story goes on from there in verse 21. So the son is getting ready to deliver his speech. He gets bear hugged by the father, face kissed by the father. And now he kind of pushes back a little bit like, yo, I was expecting that, you know? I was not, I was not expecting compassion. I was ex- expecting, you know, confrontation. And he gets there and the son says these words. The son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Now, was that part in his rehearsed speech? Yes. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Was that in his rehearsed speech? Okay, now if, you're, if you have a Bible open, I want you to go to his rehearsed speech, all right? Go back to that. What else was in there? He said, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he says, treat me like one of your hired servants, all right? So that's the speech he rehearsed. I want you to see the speech he got out and what's not in there. What's not in there was treat me like one of your hired servants. Look what the father says immediately following. The father says to his servants, doesn't even give him a chance, cuts him off. I'm not gonna let you get the S word out of your mouth, child. I'm your daddy. I'm not hiring you. I don't hire kids. You can't work this off. I will work this off. I will allow this debt to be taken care of. And says specifically to the servants, you're a son. They are servants. Quick, bring the best robe, which that would have been daddy's robe. If you were looking at son and father from walking both, you know, walking face away from you, you would think, oh man, that's, that's the best robe. That's obviously the father walking right there. Nope, actually, younger bro. Bring the best robe, sign of nobility. Put that on him. Put the ring on his finger, which and in that day, that would have been the equivalent of saying, give him the family credit card. And again, this is your incredibly fiscally negligent child who you're just swapping out the credit card and giving it back to them. The signet ring was basically what you could take to any store or any market and it would have the family seal kind of embossed on it. And so, um, and, and there is kind of the way of paying for something is you would have a little bit of wax right there and you would stamp the, the melted wax. You would push that into that and that would essentially be the seal to say that's on the family line. He gets that ring back. It's not just some gold cool looking ring. It's the family seal. It's a family credit card. He gets that back. He's now brought back into to all those resources. He says, put the ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. In that day and age, uh, if you were poverty, all those other servants, servants had no shoes on. The sign that you had money, sandals. You had shoes on your feet. He said, I don't care where those feet have gone. And I'm not even gonna ask for them to be washed and cleaned. Put the sandals on his feet. From there, party really gets cranked up. He says, bring the fattened calf. In that day and age, that would have been the calf that they were preparing for just the biggest of most important festivals. And again, I, I believe all this, <laughs> you know, year after year would roll around. Hey, uh, hey, dad, what are we going to do with that calf? I don't know if the father says it out loud or not. Leave it. Leave it next year. Leave it. It's not quite a calf anymore, dad. Leave it. Don't touch that calf. I know what that one's for. I got a plan for that one. Bring out the fat calf, kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate. Let's party. And again, 
thinking he's going to get condemnation, think he's going to get punishment, he gets a party. Instead of getting to go, having to go to his room and to be punished, the father says, hire a DJ, kill the calf, ribs, brisket, it's on. That's where he goes. And again, this is a God that we don't understand. We don't understand a father who would take this price for us. I want you to see Jesus in this story. I want you to see him here. I want you to see that this is the type of God we serve. I want you to feel in this moment what the people who are the, the have-nots would have felt, that, that would have gone, oh my goodness, there is a God who would say and search. There's a God who would welcome me in. Despite my sin, despite my shame, despite how much I have wasted, there's a God who would let me in. And here is why he lets them in. Verse 24, for this son, that's the only reason. Son, again, I wanna go back to this whole worth thing. This is what, his worth was here, was always here and never left from here. He was always a son. He was always a son of the father. The son of mine was dead. He was dead in his sin. Deadness trespassers, but now he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And so they began to celebrate. And I don't know how far removed you are from the day you had your rebirth. I don't know how far away you are from the day you became a born again Christian. I don't know how far removed you are from the day you were baptized, but my prayer is that you understand that the party was never meant to end. That we're supposed to enjoy this party. That there's supposed to be a joy to Christians. I'm so tired of so many Christians looking like we just ate an onion sandwich every time that we walk into church, every time we meet. I mean, how many of you know so many Christians who are the most joy-filled, life-sucking, spiritual vampires around? There has got to be a joy to us. And I think sometimes this is what happens with, with us is we get, we get found and we become a part of the party. And then it goes from being a party to an office. It's always supposed to be a party. It's always supposed to be a place of joy because you were never supposed to get what the pig pen smelt and felt like. Some of you are so far removed from the sin that you forgot how good the party really is. My prayer today is that you realize the price that was paid so that you could be on that dance floor. The price that was paid so that you could come to a relationship with the father who says, despite what you think made you worthy, I gave my son I treated him like he was worthless so you could see the worth that I see in you. And again, that only happens when our faith and our trust in our, is put in him. There is nothing innate and special about you until you put Christ on you. And when that happens, man, things begin to change. Things begin to lift up and the light begins to shine in and through you. And today I pray that for those of you who may feel like you are a prodigal, that you would return home that you would see the father with arms wide open, welcoming him in. In the same way the son left going, here's all I want from you. That maybe even today you would come back and you say, in this moment, I need nothing else. I, father, thank you for the robe. Father, thank you for the sandals. Thank you for the ring. Thank you for the party, the DJ, the calves, the ribs, all of it. Father, thank you for all those. But the main thing I need, the main thing I want, the thing that I will never ever forget is your embrace and your kiss. Because Father, all I really wanted when I turned on this prodigal road to head towards home, all I really wanted was you and nothing else. Because nothing else would do. And I pray as you commune with him, that you thank him for the price that was paid so that you could come home. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace, mercy, and kindness to us. As we commune with you now in these moments, as we break uh, bread, as we see the poured out blood represented by this juice, that we remember the price that was paid 
that we remember the, the path that was made for us to come home. In your name, amen.